talk for Sunday morning, New Beginnings 7, The Orange Tree Parable. I dreamed I drove on a Florida road, still and straight and empty. On either side were groves of orange trees, so that as I turned to look at them from time to time, line after line of trees stretched back endlessly from the road, their boughs heavy with round yellow fruit. This was harvest time. My wonder grew as the miles slipped by. How could this harvest be gathered? Suddenly I realized that for all the hours I had been driving, and this was how I knew I must be dreaming, I had seen no other person. The groves were empty of people. No other car had passed me. No houses were seen on the side of the highway. I was alone in a forest of orange trees. But at last I saw some orange pickers far from the highway, almost on the horizon, lost in the vast wilderness of unpicked fruit, I could discern a tiny group of them working steadily. And many miles later I saw another group. I could not be sure, but I suspected that the earth beneath me was shaking with silent laughter at the hopelessness of their task. Yet the pickers went on picking. The sun had long passed its zenith and the shadows were lengthening when, without any warning, I turned a corner of the road to see a notice, leaving neglected country, entering home country. The contrast was so startling that I scarcely had time to take in the notice. I had to slow down, for all at once the traffic was heavy. People by the thousands swarmed the road and crowded the sidewalks. Even more startling was the transformation of the orange groves. Orange groves were still there with orange trees in abundance, but far from being silent and empty, they were filled with laughter and the singing of multitudes of people. Indeed, it was the people we noticed rather than the trees, people and houses. I parked the car at the roadside and mingled with the crowd. Smart gowns, neat shoes, showy hats, expensive suits and starched shirts made me a little conscious of my own work clothes. Everyone seemed so fresh and poised and happy. Is it a holiday? I asked the well-dressed woman with whom I fell into step. She looked a little startled for a moment and then her face relaxed with a smile of gracious condescension. You're a stranger, aren't you? She said before I could reply. She said, this is Orange Day. She must have seen the puzzled look on my face. For she went on. It is so good to turn aside from one's labours and pick oranges one day of the week. But don't you pick oranges every day, I asked her. One may pick oranges at any time, she said. We should always be ready to pick oranges, but Orange Day is the day we devote especially to orange picking. I left her and made my way further among the trees. Most of the people were carrying a book bound beautifully in leather and edged in lettered gold. I was able to discern on the edge of one of them the words, Orange Picker's Manual. By and by, I noticed around one of the orange trees that seats had been arranged, rising upward in tiers from the ground. The seats were almost full, but as I approached the group, a smiling, well-dressed gentleman shook my hand and conducted me to a seat. There, around the front of the orange tree, I could see a number of people. One of them was addressing all the people on the seats, and just as I got to my seat, everyone rose to his feet and began to sing. The man next to me shared me me 
his songbook. It was called The Song of the Orange Groves. They sang for some time, and the song leader waved his arms with a strange and frenzied abandon, exhorting the people in the intervals between the songs to sing more loudly. I grew steadily more puzzled. When do we start to pick oranges? I asked the man who had loaned me his book. It's not long now, he told me. We like to get everyone warmed up first. Besides, we want to make the oranges feel at home. I thought he was joking, but his face was serious. After a while, another man took over from the song leader and after reading two sentences from his well-thumbed copy of the Orange Picker's Manual, began to make a speech. It wasn't clear whether he was addressing the people or the oranges. I glanced behind me and saw a number of groups of similar people, similar to our own group, gathering around an occasional tree and being addressed by other speakers. Some of the trees had no one around them. Which trees did we pick from? I asked the man beside me. He did not seem to understand, so I pointed to the trees around me. This is our tree, he said, pointing to the one that we were gathered around. But there are too many of us to pick from just one tree, I protested. Why, there are more people than oranges. But we don't pick oranges, the man explained. We haven't been called. That's the head orange picker's job. We are here to support him. Besides, we haven't been to college. You know, you need to go to uh, college before you can begin to pick successfully. You need to know orange psychology. Most of these folk here, he said, went on pointing, have never even been to manual school. Manual school, I whispered. What's that? It's where they go to study the orange picker's manual, my informant went on. It's very hard to understand. You need years of study before it makes any sense. I see, I murmured. I had no idea that picking oranges was so difficult. The speaker at the front was still making his speech. His face was red and he appeared to be indignant about something. So far as I could see, there was rivalry with some of the other orange-picking groups. But at a moment later, he relaxed and he said, But we are not forgotten. We have much to be thankful for. Last week we saw three oranges brought into our baskets. And we are now completely debt-free from the money we owed on the new cushion covers that graced the seats you now sit on. Isn't it wonderful, the man next to me murmured. I made no reply. I felt that something must be profoundly wrong somewhere. All this seemed to be a very roundabout way of picking oranges. The speaker was reaching a climax in his speech. The atmosphere seemed tense. Then with a very dramatic gesture, he reached two of the oranges, plucked them from the branch and placed them in a basket at his feet. The applause was deafening. Do we start picking now? I asked my informant. What in the world do you think we're doing, he hissed. What do you suppose this tremendous effort has been made for? There's more orange-picking talent in this group than in the rest of home county. Thousands of dollars have been spent on the tree you're looking at. I apologized quickly. I wasn't being critical, I said, and I'm sure the speaker must be a very good orange-picker. But surely the rest of us could try. After all, there are so many oranges that need picking. We each have a pair of hands. We could read the manual. When you've been in this business as long as I am, you'll realize that it's not as simple as that, he replied. 
There isn't time for one thing. We have work to do, our families to care for, our homes to look after. We, But I wasn't listening. Light was beginning to break on me. Whatever these people were, they were not orange pickers. Orange picking was just a form of entertainment for their weekends. I tried one or two more of the groups around the trees. Not all of them had such high academic standards for orange pickers. Some held classes on orange picking. I tried to tell them of the trees I had seen in the neglected country, but they seemed to have little interest. We haven't picked the oranges here yet, was the usual reply. The sun was almost setting in my dream, and growing tired of the noise and activity all around me, I got in the car and began to drive back along the road I had come. Soon, all around me, around me there were vast and empty orange groves. But there were changes. Some things had happened in my absence. Everywhere, the ground was littered with fallen fruit. And as I watched, it seemed that before my eyes, the trees began to rain oranges, many of them rotting on the ground. I felt there was something so strange about it all, and my bewilderment grew as I thought of all the people in home county. Then booming through the trees, there came a voice which said, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray for the Lord of the harvest that he may send forth laborers. And I awakened, for it was only a dream. This parable was written by uh, Dr. John White. John was a Canadian man who was a missionary in uh, South America for a a long time as as a medical missionary. He was a vineyard pastor and leader, church planter, ended up being a psychiatrist. And he wrote this parable quite a long time ago. And the language and the imagery is maybe a little archaic, but it points to one of the real problems of the church generally in the world in which we live. It's become self-absorbed. It's become engrossed in its own affairs and has forgotten, I think, to a large extent, what it's about. And so the parable that we looked at, or the story we looked at last week of letting go, is also applicable when it comes to the church, I think. It's not just individuals that have to let go of the way that we've done things for so long. In the church, we have to look at what we're doing and how we do things and reassess. There are sometimes confusions about what is essential and what is unchanging. The creeds basically state that we are one holy Catholic and apostolic, and it's that sense of up and in and out and the being of the church, the, the, the core things, the ancient faith doesn't change. But the expression of it in a current uh, context does. The way we do things is important. And if you look at some of this, uh, the data that has come out post-COVID, there's been a couple of uh, large research studies done, and it seems that the church has shrunk between 20 and 30%. COVID really accelerated, in a way, what perhaps was already happening. And without going into too much detail and and focusing on that in particular, I think we need to say that in the post-Christian world that we live in now, we do not have a seat at the high table. We do not set the agenda any longer. 
for many we are an irritant and irrelevant. Uh, we are fast becoming a minority, those who really seek to um, express their faith in a, in a, in a, um, a concrete and practical way are becoming the fringe. So it can't be business as usual because essentially we end up looking like those in the parable of the orange pickers. We're plowing the same furrow over and over again and expecting to get a different result. The oranges don't just leap into the basket. They don't just walk in to the uh, church. And so I'd like to read a passage that I went back to just recently and saw from a different perspective. I read it in the message. It's Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 37 to 47. Cut to the quick, those who were listening to Peter, and this is where Peter has preached the sermon on the, after the day of Pentecost. They said to him, brothers, brothers, so now what do we do? And Peter said, change your life, turn to God and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins are forgiven. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is targeted to you and your children, but also to all who are far away, whoever, in fact, the Master God invites. He went on in this vein for a long time, urging them over and over, get out while you can, get out of this sick and stupid culture. That day about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized and were signed up. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal and prayers. Everyone was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles. And all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home, every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. Every day their number grew as God added those who were being saved. And as I read and reflected on that a little while back, I, I realized that the first part of that is a challenge. People have listened and they've heard, but there's a challenge that comes. In the message, they say, what shall we do? And Peter says this, change your life. Turn to God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus so that your sins are forgiven. Receive the Holy Spirit. And, and it says that for some time he urged them. So it wasn't just something that happened instantly. It was a, um, in the moment there was the sense of having to express what he was trying to say. But he was saying, Change yourself, change your life, turn to God, be baptized so that your sins are forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit. And then it says he was urging them. Now, there's, there's a, a, there's, in the word in Greek, there's a very real urgency. And he says, get out while you can, get out of the sick and stupid culture. Doesn't mince his words, but there's this challenge to people. They're not just it, it's not just he, he, he spoke and they listened and that was it. Their response is really interesting. It says in verse 41 and 42, 3,000 signed up and committed that day. They committed to four things. The teaching of the apostles, the scriptures, listening to the word of God. A life together, their fellowship. The common meal, communion and eating together. And then prayer, or it's in plural, prayers actually. 
so they respond to what Peter has said. They respond to this urging for them to find life in all its fullness. So there's the challenge, there's a response, and then there's this result from verse 43 onwards. It talks about awe, signs and wonders by apostles, believers living in harmony, holding everything in common, pooling their resources and meeting needs, the daily discipline of worship, followed with meals of celebration and rejoicing and telling of God's goodness. It's only then, again, that numbers were added to their um, ranks daily. God added those who were being saved. It ends the chapter like that. See, the question for me is this. What are we doing? What are we about? What does the church exist for? Why do we get together? Um, the church happens when people encounter Jesus, the risen Jesus, and commit themselves to sustaining and deepening that encounter in their encounter with each other. But we exist not for ourselves. We exist not to pat ourselves on the back. We exist both to get, gather together to rejoice and celebrate God's goodness. We, re, we exist to encourage and to help one another grow up and become mature in our faith. But we exist to be the light and the salt that is sprinkled out into the community, that is shone out into the life that we live. The point of the orange pickers parable is that we have to ask actually what what we're about. What 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 is it that we're wanting to achieve? And I want to end by saying oranges are not going to pick themselves. Oranges are not going to roll in the door. The church has to be the church wherever we are, at work, at home, at play. But we also have to understand that we are sent and commissioned. And it's only as we do what we are called to do that we will see the church grow. It's not the job of one person or another. It's all of us who are called to be orange pickers. And so the question as we come to this Sunday is, when you read this passage from Acts chapter 2, chapter 2 verse 37 to 47, what do you see? regarding the church.